good. I think we're good. Hope you're doing well today. Happy Sabbath to each of you. And uh, I'm going to probably break the rules this morning, but I'm going to slide this right here. So don't stone me. I won't even look at you while I'm doing it. And uh, <clears throat> how are you? Are you happy today? Thankful in the Lord? Rejoicing? And uh, we're thankful to be here, amen? I can't think of any other place I'd rather be except in heaven itself than on, in God's house on Sabbath morning. This is that time when God's people can come together for this hour of worship, and we don't get together at this time, at least in this many of us, at any other time during the week. And isn't that a privilege? Amen? There will come the time when we will all wish that we could be in this type of setting again. That time is coming, I believe, very, very soon, and I believe that you do as well. Well, the title of our message this morning is The Evolutionary Creationists. And what does that mean? Well, we're going to find out. And I wanted our scripture reading to be just very clear and succinct and, and just very short and to the point because I believe there is an important message that we are not getting as Seventh-day Adventists. And you may think, well, if I'm a creationist, there's no way I'm an evolutionist. Well, by the time we get to the end of this sermon, you may think otherwise. You may, I don't know, hopefully not. But if I were to ask you this morning, how many of you would consider yourself a creationist? How many of you would say, I'm a creationist this morning? Now, how would you define a creationist? We better pray first. We better pray, because you guys are like, what's this guy up to this morning? Well, let's pray, and then we'll ask, and then we'll talk. Father in heaven, we thank you so much this morning for the great privilege we have of coming together and worshiping you, thinking of you, meditating upon you, dwelling upon you on this Sabbath day, a day that we celebrate your creative power in the world and also in our lives, and on the day that you have set aside that we can come together as your people to worship you and to give you that praise and honor that you do deserve. So we ask you to be with us this morning, open our hearts to the influence of the Spirit of God, and move upon us, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You know, I did forget to mention something before we do get into this that I don't know if you, any of you noticed, but we do have some friends outside. And uh, they've been here before, I understand. And when I was the pastor of the Lansing Church, they visited us a number of times. And um, I just go out and greet them and wish them a happy Sabbath and move on. I don't read their stuff. I don't need to. I know what they believe. So I would just encourage you to do the same and uh, just smile. They may say some things to you that are insulting, but it's just good preparation for the time of the end. Um, so anyway, how many of you would consider yourself a creationist this morning? How many of you would say, I'm an evolutionist? And if you're an evolutionist, that's fine. I re respect that. I used to be an atheist. But is it possible this morning that there are many among us as Seventh-day Adventist Christians who actually would also qualify as an evolutionist? You may think, no. But it's true. Now, as Seventh-day Adventists, we believe in a six-day literal creation. Is that true? Yes or no? And we have no problems whatsoever believing that. 
because we believe that there's a God in the Bible that has the power and the ability to create things in any capacity, in any amount of time that He so chooses, right? Well, I want to read for you this morning the definition of evolution. Now, there's many different definitions, but this is one that I found. A definition is the process by which different kinds of living organisms are thought to have developed and diversified from earlier forms during the history of the earth. In other words, simple life forms through various means and processes over the course of long periods of time become more advanced and more um, you know, developed and even more civilized, correct? I mean, everybody knows what evolution is. Now, here is also a second kind of sub-definition that I find very interesting. It says, evolution is the theory that represents the course of the whole world as a gradual transition from the lower to the higher, from the worse to the what? To the better. I just had a discussion with a young man on campus this week, and I said, you know, it seems to me like we're not actually getting better, we're actually getting worse. He didn't know what to say. I said, you know, Anna, you know the lifespans are getting shorter, uh, you know, people are getting dumber, we're having all kinds of problems in the world today. We're more sick than we've ever been before. It doesn't seem like if evolution is true that we should be getting worse. We should actually be getting what? Better. He was just looked at me. He didn't know what to say because he knew it was true. But notice this. So, so let me just say the point of evolution is that things should be able to, in their primitive state, progress and mutate and whatever and get what? Better over the course of time. And notice this, it says, thus the progress points to an increased value in existence. In other words, my value of existence is based upon how far along I have what? Progressed. Are you with me? And, and, you know, for instance, we place more value on ourselves than we do probably like a mouse because we are more uh, and further progressed and developed, correct? But notice this. Thus, progress points to an increased value in existence as judged by our feelings. That's an interesting thought. So based upon how we feel about ourselves and how we feel about the world, the point being that that's how we judge our progression by how we want by how we feel. Now that's a sub-definition of evolution. And so the point being that the thing that's evolving gets better of itself and that which causes it to get better is itself. In other words, we advance and progress because of ourselves. And the judgment on how we determine how much we progressed is based upon how we feel. Is everybody with me, yes or no, this morning? Now, the challenge with that is, A, we're not progressing, and B, our feelings change by every waking, fleeting moment, correct? But I want to propose this morning that if a person is judging their progression by their feelings, that's the very definition of evolutionism, correct? Or evolution. You know you're better because you feel better. I want to think about this morning that maybe this type of thinking and this type of experience has actually crept over or spilled over 
into the Christian experience. You think that's a possibility? Actually, I know it is. So sometimes we have ups and downs in Christianity, correct, in our Christian experience, and we judge our growth or our experience based upon, as we've looked back and how we feel about that, we mark our progress by some sort of uh, a thing that we think might have happened based upon how we feel about it, but is that the way that we progress as Christians, yes or no? So it could be this morning that some of us here are evolutionists spiritually rather than creationists. So let's go to our Bibles this morning, to the book of Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, and we're going to see, establish a few points, and then we're going to go to a few more points. Hebrews chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 1. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1. If you're there, please say amen. Amen. Try to at least act like you're awake this morning. Amen? At least try to pretend. If you can't do it, pretend. Prop your eyes open or have someone next to you do that for you. Just hold them open. All right, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1 says, it seems like, you know, like like we we don't fall asleep when we're watching movies. We don't fall asleep when we're checking Facebook. But when we open our Bibles, we all of a sudden just like fall asleep. It doesn't make any sense to me, but that's just kind of how it is. But anyway, verse 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things. And I want you to notice this next line, through whom also He made the what? He made the worlds. It doesn't say world singular, it says world what? Plural, correct? Who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So I want you to consider this for just a minute. The Bible says that not only did Christ create the worlds, but He also, not, uh, he also upholds them by the power of His word. Can you imagine today? that everything that you are and everything that I am is upheld by Christ, the Word of Life. Isn't that a spectacular thought this morning? And that not only does God have the power to create things, but He has the power also to what? Sustain it. You see, when we create stuff, we don't have the power to sustain it. When a house gets built for a person, it's a brand new house, and, and in the very beginning, it's all very nice, and it's all very beautiful, and it's all, you know, just perfect, and there's no nicks on the wall, and there's no stains on the carpet, and, you know, there's no holes in, in anything. But as time progresses, and you let your, you turn your kids loose in that house, what happens to that house? It begins to what? It begins to degrade, doesn't it? And the roofing begins to go bad, and the, and the walls get spotches and, and holes in them. We have lots of little spots all over our thing, and we've managed to keep our kids from drawing on the wall. But, um, you know, things start to break down. So we have the power to make stuff, but we do not have the power to sustain it in its original form. Well, the Bible says that God has the ability not just simply to create things, but he has the ability to sustain it by the word of his power. Isn't that an incredible thought? Now, I want you to turn again with me uh, to the book of Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 
3. This is a passage you're probably familiar with. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3. And this is the faith chapter, as everybody is well acquainted with. But I want to point your attention to a couple of thoughts here. Verse 3. It says, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the what? By the word of God. So that the things which are seen were made of things which are visible. We're not made of things which are visible. Now, I'm going to back up here to verse 1, and it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. People all the time who are atheists and whatever, they will attack and, and, and criticize the concept of faith because they think that we think that anything that is of faith is just simply things that we can't explain in the natural world. And that's not it at all. People also think that faith is just some nebulous thing that is out there that we just have this idea about something then we have no substantial evidence for it. Well, the Bible says that faith is the substance. It is what? It is the substance of things hoped for and the what? Evidence of things not seen. So faith is not built upon nebulism. It is built upon substance. And people say, well, they'll argue with me and they'll say, well, tell me, tell me, give me some kind of evidence for God. And I just hold up a mirror. And I say, the greatest evidence for the existence of God is you. Because your mind is complex. I told the guy this week, I said, look, I said, here's my Apple computer. Would you ever say that this thing came about by a chance? Would you believe that I put some pieces of scrap metal in a bucket and I shook it up and then I opened it and out popped an Apple Mac computer? Would you believe that to be true? No. I said, yet you believe that the same thing happened to you, that a bunch of chemicals came together, they shook up a little bit, maybe a lightning bolt struck it, and out came a person, or maybe not a person, but a live thing, and it evolved into you. I said, so everything in the world that's organized and has some type of systematic thought process, we know there is absolutely no chance in all the world that that would ever come about by chance. And yet you believe your mind and your person which is more advanced than that Mac computer because your mind built that computer, came about by chance. It can't be the case. Faith is never an issue of being nebulous. We build faith based upon the evidence that we see of God's hand working already in the world. Does that make sense? It is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And so in other words, there is an evidence for which we build our faith upon, and God doesn't ask us to believe blindly, but He asks us to believe based upon the evidence that He's already given us. Now that doesn't mean that we can't see the future, but we can see the present, and we can see what God has done, what God is doing, and the faith comes by the application of believing and trusting that what He will do. If we see what He has done, we can trust in His promises for what He will do. How many of you would agree with that this morning? Then the Bible says... By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. So God's Word this morning has creative power, yes or no? What kind of power does it have? Creative, creative power. Which means this. If I were to say, right here is a podium, would you agree with that statement? Yes or no? And I can sit here and I can pound this thing all day and say, right here is a podium. There is a podium right here. 
And would you agree with that? Would you believe that? Yes. But if I say right here, here is a podium, how many of you would agree with that? You wouldn't agree with that, would you? I can only declare as a person what is already there. But for God, because His Word has what kind of power? Creative power. If God points to nothing and says there's a podium, whether there was one there or not, it doesn't matter because God can declare what is, but God can also declare what is not and make it so. Are you with me? And so if God points into nothing and says there's a podium, what will happen if there's not one there? There will be one. Because His Word has what kind of power? Creative power. So if God says, let there be a world there, or let there be light, or let there be land or sea or animals, because God's Word has what kind of power? Creative power. Even though it was not so, yet it will be. Are you with me? Yes or no? Now this is probably nothing new for you, but we're just establishing a couple of points here. And so God's Word has creative power. And here's the thing. For us to make stuff, we have to have things that were already there in order to make the thing that we want to make, correct? In other words, if we want to build a house, we have to go out and chop down some trees and form them into boards. We have to take some metal that we find in the earth and craft out nails. We have to make all the parts and all the pieces for the thing that we want to build. Does that make sense? So we have some form of limited creative power because we were made in the image of God. We have the ability to think and to craft and to design and then to build. But everything that we build must be built out of something that was already there. God, with God, it is not so. God can create things from what? Nothing. He can create the most advanced things from what? From nothing. Are you with me so far? And so God not only has the, the same word, rather, that creates those things, will also sustain them by that same word. Because God's word is not only creating, but it is also sustaining. Are you with me? Is that clear? So far, how many of you would agree with me? So far, based upon what we've established this morning, how many of you would still say, I'm a creationist this morning? Anybody want to say, no, based upon what you said, I'm an evolutionist? All right. Okay, so we're all, all on the same page so far, right? Now please go with me to Psalm 33. Psalm 33, very quickly. I'm going to have to move here because I'm already running out of time. I'm used to preaching for an hour. But uh, you guys told me 30 to 12.30, but... We'll see. Psalm 33. I'm not going to preach next week, so I don't, I don't have to worry about your wrath too much. <laughs> Psalm 33 and uh, verse 4. The Bible's uh, not verse 4, verse 6, sorry. Psalm 33, verse 6, the Bible says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were what? Made. And all the host of them, by the breath of his mouth, he gathers together the waters of the sea is a heap, he lays in, up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he what? What did he do? He spoke, the Bible says, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. So God's word, 
whether spoken or audible, has what kind of power? Creative power. Now this verse here, verse 8 and 9, it says, Let all the earth fear the Lord, for He spoke and it was done, He commanded, stood fast. That sounds like another verse I think of, like something like Revelation 14, verse 6 and 7, right? Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. Well, why should we fear God? It says, Worship Him who made heaven, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water, right? Worshiping God in earth's final moments because of the Creator. Now, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, our scripture reading, Genesis chapter 1, we're going to keep you turning here this morning, like a Bible study. Genesis chapter 1, the Bible says in verse 1, In the beginning, God what? Created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. The darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be what? Light. And there was light. And God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the day. And so all the way down through the creation story, the, the, the pattern continues to be the same. And God did what? What did He do? He said, or He spoke, right? And when He spoke, things happened. How much power do you think was involved in the creation account? As God spoke each day, and all the elements and the, and the different things began to move and, and take shape, how much power was involved in that creation? What do you think? A little bit? A moderate amount? A lot? Or even more than a lot? There was infinite power going into the moving of things to bring about creation week. Is that true, yes or no? And God has the ability. I mean, like, people say, you know, well, there's no way that God could create the world in six days. How do you know? You weren't even there. <laughs> and this guy, I'm talking to this guy this week, and I'm not trying to be, like, you know, like a smart aleck about it, but this guy's saying, well, you know, the universe is 13.4 billion years old. I'm like, how do you know? Well, we can base upon, yeah, but you don't really know. You make a guess based upon things that you can see, observe, and you don't really know. And when I appeal to people on these things, I'm not saying to them, you should believe in God. I'm just saying, like, just really confess that you don't really know for sure. If you're just willing to do that, I'm good. We don't know. They don't, they don't have any idea how things supposedly evolve. Anyway, that's a whole other thing. I have a bachelor's degree in science, so I studied all those classes, and I know that they don't know. <laughs> but let me ask you a question this morning. This is very important for the rest of our study. How much time passed between what God said and what came to pass, the creation? When God said, let there be light, how much time passed between when God spoke the word and the light was there? Like, you know, like a couple million years? couple thousand years, a couple decades, how about a couple minutes? How about, how about a couple of seconds? Or was the thing that God spoke created in the same moment that he was speaking? And so even quite possibly, I don't know this for sure, but even quite possibly that by the time God even finished the sentence, the thing was already there. 
Does that make sense? As he was speaking, it was already moving as the sentence was being said to form. He didn't speak it and then like, oh, some things are going to happen over the course of 10 minutes and then it's going to come about and poof, there it is. No, as God spoke, it was so. So let me ask you a question. If there is any amount of time that would pass between the time that God spoke and the time that that thing took place, would that be creation, yes or no? It would not. It would be what? It would be evolution. Are we on the same page with that this morning? Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Okay? Because evolution is the theory that represents the course of the whole world as a gradual transition. Whether it's billions of years or two or three minutes, that's gradual, correct? So any amount of time that would be inserted between when God spoke and when it was finished, that would be evolution if there was any amount of time that passed. <clears throat> because creation is not gradual, it is what? It is instantaneous. How many of you would say, I'm a creationist still? You, you agree with that statement that I just made, correct? Now, is God's power, is His creative power established for only a certain point in time or for any time in earth's history? Any time. So would God still have creative power today, yes or no? Would He still have creative power in the New Testament, yes or no? Are you with me? Go with me to the New Testament to the book of Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. The story of the centurion. How many of you have heard of the story before? Luke chapter 7. And actually, you know what I think I want to do? Let me, uh, let me do this real quick. I, I, keep, I always forget to do this. Matthew chapter 8. Let's go to Matthew chapter 8 instead. Same story, just a different uh, thing here. I think that's it. Where's the other story at? It's here somewhere. Sorry, I'm missing this here. What is it? Oh, I, no wonder, I'm in, the, uh, I'm in the book of Mark. It would be helpful if I go to Matthew, wouldn't it? Matthew chapter 8. I'm like, man, that's the story of the five loaves. Where are we getting that from? All right, Matthew chapter 8, thank you. All right, verse 5. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. So did this man express faith, yes or no? He did, and Jesus was responding to that faith, wasn't he? But Jesus wasn't just looking for faith. He was looking for great faith. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only what? Speak a word, and my servant will be what? Healed. How would you define faith this morning? How would you define faith? What is it? Okay, the substance of things hoped for. And, and that's a good answer. There you go. 
That's, that's the definition I was looking for. In Romans chapter 4, basically the definition of faith is that we have the belief in our hearts to the core that God's word will accomplish what he says it will accomplish. That we believe that his word is so sure that it will accomplish, even though it seems like an impossibility, and the word that, and that's what simple faith is. It's believing that God will do what he says he will do. That's, a, that's as simple as it gets, okay? Now, this man is there, and he says, uh, I'm not worthy, but if you'll just do what? If you'll just speak a word, I know that my servant will be healed. Verse 9, for I am also, I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And so why was it that Jesus said this? Very simple. The centurion had been around where Jesus had been. Yes or no? He heard his words and often saw the effect of those words when Jesus would heal. And he thought to himself, you know, whatever this man says, this man Jesus, whatever he speaks, it happens. It's done. So he decided to have this advantage. He was going to go to Jesus himself. So he went to him and he said what was written. Jesus knew that the man had made up in his mind. He didn't even need Jesus to come. I want you to understand this. When Jesus said, I'll come, the man says, no, 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 no. You don't need to come because I know that the power of your word is great enough to do whatever it says, and it doesn't matter where you are. All that matters is that your word is there. Does that make sense? And he says, look, I'm a man under authority. He says, I say, I say to this man, I want you to go and I want you to do this. And he gets up and does it. Are you with me? He, 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 I say to another one, go do this. And he moves. He says, so I well understand authority. He says, when I speak as a centurion, things get done. Are you with me? He says, my word carries authority. Now, if I take off my centurion hat and I take off my armor and I just become an ordinary person... And I say to, to another man, I want you to go do this. That man will say to me, what? Who are you to tell me what to do, right? But the moment he puts on that centurion hat, he has an authority about him. Are you with me? Then that authority gets uh, carried out by the words that he speaks. Does that make sense? Are you with me? So he's saying, look, if I'm a, if I'm a Roman centurion... And people obey my word by being just an earthly centurion over a hundred soldiers. How much more you being the son of God, when you speak, it doesn't matter where you are, Lord. You're present. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying, but it's not so much important that your presence is there as that your word speaks. And he says, and if you speak as the son of God, it will be done no matter where it is, what the obstacle is, what the difficulty is. So when he said this, he was basically confessing Jesus as the Son of God. Are you with me? Now he was able to grasp what God had been trying to get his people to grasp for thousands of years. 
that the word of God has the power to do for you what you cannot do for yourselves. Now the Israelites said, they heard God speak and they said, oh, this is true what the Lord has said. And all that he has said, we will what? We will do and be obedient. The problem was they never did it because they were relying upon who? Themselves to do it rather than relying strictly and solely upon who? Upon him. But when this man said, oh, the Lord is able to do this, and if he just speaks the word, it will happen, that man demonstrated the exact faith that is needed to enter the kingdom of God. Now a question for you this morning. You can, you can, you can write down this verse, Mark chapter 1, verse 41 and 42. I'm not going to read it, but the Bible tells us that speaking of that servant, that he was immediately made well. How quickly was he made well? Immediately. Which means that when Jesus spoke the words, let, it be, let him be healed, how much time passed between when God spoke the word and the man became well? How much time passed? No time. It was what? Immediate. Are you with me this morning? Yes or no? Now, I want you to understand, Jesus is demonstrating over and over again that the Word of God has what kind of power, everyone? And that, that Word, that power, is not over the course of time, but it is how? It is immediate. And the same Word that was spoken at creation and created instant results, the same Word that was spoken about that centurion's servant when he was healed, is the same word today that can be true not just generally in the world, but true where? In us today. Does that make sense? How is it with us today? God says in Ezekiel chapter 36 that if you want to be right with Him, you have to get yourself a new heart. And do you have the possibility to get yourself a new heart, yes or no? You can only do what? You can only receive that which God gives to you. Would you agree with that, yes or no? If God were to give you a clean heart this morning because you asked for it, how much time would need to pass between when he spoke the word and you received that clean heart? How much time? Now, as Seventh-day Adventists, we got no problem believing that God created the world in six days, and when he spoke, it stood fast. We got no problem believing that, that when, when in the Bible stories, Jesus spoke the word, let you be healed, that those people were healed immediately. Are you with me? We got no problem believing that. But when it comes to 2018, and when it comes to God's promises being applied to our lives today, 
we become not creationists, but evolutionists. Because we say, you know what, maybe someday God is going to give me victory over this thing. Maybe someday God's going to change me so I don't yell at my wife or my husband anymore. Maybe someday, you know, God's going to give me more patience with my kids. Maybe someday God's going to straighten out that, you know, that difficulty between me and that other church member. Maybe someday God's going to do a thing for me. And then sometimes we think to ourselves, well, maybe I need to do this thing or that thing. And we start to try to, to, to develop a clean new heart by our own works and by our own strength. And we think, I'm just going to do this and I'm just going to do that. And so what happens is we are uh, going back to that original definition that we are trying to go from a gradual transition from the lower to the higher, from the worse to the better, and thus our progress points to an increased value in our existence, maybe God will accept me, as judged by our feelings. And we look back over our life and we say, you know, I've had all these ups and downs, but I'm hoping that I'm good enough to be in the kingdom of God. I'm hoping that I'm good enough to be accepted by Him. I'm hoping that God will receive me because, you know, I've really strived hard to do the right thing. You know, I've strived to live as, as a good Seventh-day Adventist. You know what you're doing? You're doing the same thing Israel did. And you know what they were? They were evolutionists. Why? Because they believed that either they could do it in their own strength or they believed that sometime in the future God was going to do for them what He had already promised to do for them right now. Right today. Are you with me this morning? God's creative power is no different today than it was at creation or as it was in the New Testament when Jesus walked. This written word is just as good, just as powerful, and just as potent as the spoken word was at creation and when Jesus walked upon the earth. We do not need to do anything to, to, to try to have a clean heart except receive that which what God has already promised us. Are you with me, yes or no, this morning? So this morning, you don't have to raise your hands this time, but in your Christian experience, have you been a creationist or have you been an evolutionist? Waiting and thinking that sometime down the road, Eventually, God's going to do something for you when God has already promised you to do, it, to do it for you today. If we find ourselves evolutionists this morning, not creationists, we should not try to deny the fact, but we should confess it to Him. What do you think? And turn away from it to the power of the living word. Would you go out of this church this morning with a heart that is created by God, or would you leave with another heart of your own creating? I want to read these words to you because they're important, and I don't want to miss them. These are my words. But his word, spoken to us in the dark waste and void space of our own hearts, if received produces there the same line of God as when he first spoke it on the first day of creation. 
to the void of the earth. That word spoken and received today to us who are afflicted with the leprosy of sin will immediately cleanse us. The word is living. The life that is in it is the life of God. And the life of God is in the word. Forever it abides and forever it remains. So therefore, it forever has a creative power to do a work in your heart and in my heart. You believe that this morning? You can leave this morning with a clean heart. I just want to read a couple more things to you. Is that okay? Is that okay? Good. I was going to do it anyway, but I'm glad I got your permission. (laughs) Testimonies, volume 2, page 453. None are so low, so corrupt and vile that they cannot find in Jesus, who died for them, strength, purity, and righteousness. You don't like who you are, neither does anyone else. It's a good thing to change it. If they will put away their sins, cease from their course of iniquity, and turn with full purpose of heart to the living God, He is waiting to strip them of their garments, stained and polluted by sin, and to put upon them the white, white robes of righteousness, and He bids them live and not die. Aren't you thankful this morning that God wants you to live and not die? In Him they may flourish. Their branches will not wither or be fruitless. If they abide in Him, they can draw sap and nourishment from Him, be imbued with His Spirit. Now listen to this. Walk even as He walked. Overcome as He overcame and be exalted to His own right hand. Do you understand something this morning? That the righteousness which Christ possessed in His life, He did, He, 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 That righteousness was in him when he came, but he developed on earth a life of righteousness. You, You understand that? By living totally surrendered to the will of God from his birth to his death. Are you with me? And when he died, he only died because your sin and my sin was placed upon him. Correct? And the sin of every, every sin of every human being of every age was placed upon Christ all in a moment's time and the, it crushed out his life. And the, and the pain that, and the suffering and the separation he was feeling from his father was the, sep, was, was the separation of all eternity compacted in one moment. Does that make sense? And that killed him. Killed him. And he was laid in the grave. But do you understand this? That if the wages of sin are death, It's an eternal death from which no man comes forth. So the only thing that allowed Christ to come back from that death was the righteousness that he possessed in and of himself. You understand that? that Because sin is so powerful, it will put you in the grave for eternity. For eternity. Are you with me? But the righteousness of Christ is so great that even though all of the sin that you and I possessed in our wicked little hearts was put on his life and it killed him, his righteousness was great enough to raise him from the dead despite all the sin that was laid on him. you got to think about that for just a minute. That that's why he rose from the dead, because his righteousness was greater than your sin today and my sin. How many of you can say amen today? That's a powerful thought this morning. And so he promises 
to give us that righteousness when we believe on the promises and the truth of His Word this morning. Are you with me today? And let me say this very plainly. We cannot get any good works out of ourselves. So stop trying. If we try to do the works ourselves before we receive by faith that new creation and that new heart, it is evolution hands down. If you are trying to clean yourself up before you come to Christ, you are an evolutionist. Are you with me? Because you're thinking that there's going to be some lapse of time between when you do something and when God does something. It's evolution. We're trying to improve ourselves over time, which is the exact definition of evolution. Are you with me? The works must come as a product of the new creation, not as a process to create it. Let me say that one more time, because you're, you're, you're dozing. The works must come as a product of the new creation, not as a process to create it. Are you guilty this morning of being an evolutionist? under the name and label of a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. Shame on us for still clinging to evolution when God says, I'll just give you a new heart. The problem has been our rebellion and our resistance to receive it. How many of you would agree with that this morning? So what counsel do we have today? Stop resisting. Amen? Do not try to improve yourself over time. Do not allow your experience to be judged by your feelings, but allow your experience to be totally and completely built upon God's Word. Amen? How many of you want that experience today? How many of you... Not enough. It's not enough to want it. How many of you would choose that experience this morning? Amen? You will choose to be, by the grace of God, a creationist. I'm going to tell you a quick story, then we're going to pray. I had a friend who was an AFCO student of mine when I taught at Amazing Facts. His name was John Hircano. And John had been in, the, in a gang. And he had been, you know, he was carrying a gun. He was selling. He was getting gunfights all the time, gotten some knife fights. He had a bunch of scars from where he had been cut up at various times. And John somehow came to know the truth of the gospel, and he was baptized, and he came to AFCO, and he became a very powerful Bible worker, and, and, and people like just loved John. He was just the most humble guy. Well, over the course of time, John took his eyes off the Lord, took his eyes off Christ, and he began to drift into uh, the same pattern of his life again. And so before he knew it, he was doing drugs and sell, started selling drugs again, and he had just bought a gun that very same day, and, uh, but you know, through, through it all, he would never work on Sabbath. It's very interesting how the Sabbath always sticks with us, right? And so he decided that he was going to go to a party, and uh, he was at this party, and there was a guy that was there that he met there, and he said, hey man, let's come out back, and why don't we just go out here, and we'll do some hardcore drugs. So John followed him out there, and the guy was preparing the drugs. I don't even remember what they were going to take, and John said, 
hey, you know, I'm going to actually go over here and go to the bathroom. I'll be right back. So John goes over to another building, and out from the shadows steps a gang of about 10 to 15 guys. And they're confronting John about why he's there and what he's doing, and, and they're not going to listen to his answer, and so they start to beat him up. They're standing there punching him and kicking him, and he falls to the ground, and they're just over and over kicking him, punching him. And this guy that's over on the other uh, there preparing the drugs sees what's happening and he runs over to help John and when he does the gang turns their wrath on him and they start beating him up and several people pull out knives and they start stabbing the guy and ultimately they both went to the hospital and the guy that tried to rescue John ended up dying. John later found out that this man had been a form had previously been a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. And can you guess what his name was? He was a Hispanic guy. His name was Jesus. His name was Jesus. And the thing hit John so hard because he realized that here was a man named Jesus who literally took the death that I was supposed to take. And it shook him up so bad, it radically transformed his life. And so he had a man named Jesus take his place twice, right? And for whatever reason, this man died, but John lived. And he was rebaptized not too long ago. You understand, my friends, that when Jesus says, I take your place, he truly means, I take your place. And there is nothing more for you to do. There is good works in the life of the Christian. Make no mistake about it. But those good works cannot come truly until Jesus comes and transforms the life. If we're trying to do good, we need to repent of even our good works done in our own strength because Jesus could have done them a thousand times better. Are you with me? Does that make sense? And so, friends, the only good works that will last through eternity are the ones that Christ does through your life and his surrendered heart. Would you surrender your heart to Jesus this morning? Can I see your hands today? Amen. Let's sing our closing song. Number, what is it? 